Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In our Healthy Today, the coronavirus pandemic continuing to reach new frightening heights in the United States. There has never been a more rapid spread of the deadly virus in this nation than there is right now. There are more people hospitalized with coronavirus than ever before, 101,487, according to the COVID tracking project. And deaths, too, are also sharply rising. This past weekend was the deadliest weekend since April. And the average daily death toll in the U.S. is now 2,204 a day. For some context on that, today is Pearl Harbor Day. On this day in 1941, the Japanese attacked the U.S. Navy in Hawaii a day that will live in infamy, FDR called it. 2,403 Americans were killed on that day. 2,403. That's roughly the same number of Americans we are losing every day, every day, to this malicious virus. A coronavirus vaccine may be approved this week for Americans, but a CNN analysis shows that the first vaccine shipments are expected to fall short of what 27 states need to vaccinate their first priority group. And health officials say the upcoming holidays will make this pandemic even worse. CNN's Nick Watt reports now as the U.S. is hitting this new rapid surge, Dr. Anthony Fauci is estimating that coronavirus in this country will get even worse in the coming weeks. The United States just logged more than a million new COVID-19 cases in just five days. A comparison, South Korea, smaller population, sure, but in five days, they logged fewer than 3,000 new cases. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, and on Pearl Harbor, 2,403 Americans were killed. Three days last week, we exceeded that. The U.S. average daily death toll is higher than it's been since April, and record numbers of Americans are now in the hospital. Our surge right now is intensifying. It is amplifying. Post-Thanksgiving surge hasn't even hit yet, and soon there could be another, but bigger. With Christmas, it starts several days before. It goes through Christmas, the week after Christmas, into New Year's and the New Year's holiday. I think it could be even more of a challenge than what we saw with Thanksgiving. Sunday night, a last hurrah for many restaurants in California. Uh, We know the drill, and it's the only way to survive. Today, much of the state is back to take out only back under stay-home orders. They said, we feel we need to do this. What do you think? And I said, you know, you really don't have any choice. Because ICU beds are getting scarce, too scarce. Today, New York City reopened some schools. The parents were so happy and so relieved. But just hours later, a warning from New York's governor. If we don't get the rate under control and you are going to overwhelm your hospitals, we will have to go back to shutdown. This surge is different than earlier surges because it's not about PPE, it's not about testing, it's really about healthcare capacity. And certain places are just being overwhelmed. We've got vaccines coming, 
but we want as many people to be alive to get them as possible. These vaccines are so new, we still don't know if people could still spread the virus even after inoculation. That's possible. We're going to know the answer to that as we follow people out longer. An FDA committee meets Thursday. A green light for Pfizer's vaccine could come by week's end. But that first shipment of vaccine isn't going to be anywhere nearly enough to go around, not even enough for the first priority group, the healthcare workers and the long-term care residents. And meantime, we've got a problem here in, San Fran- in uh, California. In the past two weeks, ICU and hospital admissions are up by 70%. Right now, they're trying to hire more staff, and California has appealed to the federal government for reinforcements. Jake? All right, Nick, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss the dean of Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, thanks for joining us. A CNN analysis found that no state will be getting enough vaccine doses for all the healthcare workers and long-term care residents during this first round. So how should states determine who gets those first vaccines? Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me on. Um, it, it, look, we're going to have to go through several rounds of shipments before those first priority groups get it. I think a lot of states are trying to get it to healthcare workers first because hospitals are under siege and we need healthcare workers uh, to be safe in order to just continue to function. But absolutely true that uh, nursing homes are also a super high priority and we've got to get that group done uh, quickly as well. One million new COVID cases reported in the U.S. in just five days. One million. And this Oops. weekend. I lost you. Uh, Hello? Uh, Dr. Jha, do you hear me? Dr. Jha? All right, we lost Dr. Jha. We're going to try to bring him back. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back with this pandemic hitting horrifying numbers, uh, we are going to discuss more with Dr. Jha. Stay with us. Welcome back. We have resolved the technical difficulties. One million new COVID cases were reported in the U.S. in just five days. And this weekend marked the deadliest weekend since April. Let's pick back up our conversation with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, what's your message to people who may be letting their guard down because the vaccine is coming or just the general coronavirus fatigue that we're all frankly feeling? Yeah, we're all feeling it, Jake. And the way I describe this to folks is, We are so close to the end. Like we have in a couple of months, as these vaccines really start getting out, things will start getting better. And by late winter, early spring, life will start feeling meaningfully better. So this is not for the forever. This is not for the long run. Um, While we will continue to deal with this virus, at least to some extent, life is going to get dramatically better. And this is a time to stay protected so you can be around for that. New York City is sending nearly 200,000 students back to in-person learning this week. Meanwhile, Los Angeles County is halting all in-person learning, which was already down to only about 4,000 students. Where is the science right now on schools being open? Not the, not the emotions, not the fears. What does the science say? You know, the science on this right now, Jake, is pretty clear that it is safe to get kids back to school. Schools are not a source of spread in the community. Uh, They don't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of spreading happening within the schools themselves. Obviously, you need to do basic mitigation. Kids have to wear masks, adults have to wear masks, some amount of distancing in schools. But if we can do those things, I think it's pretty safe to get kids back in. That's where the science is right now. So why is there such resistance? Is it because teachers are, look, I I, I don't begrudge them. It's 
this is a this is a very scary situation. Teachers are afraid, and therefore teachers and teachers unions are pushing back. Is is that why we we seem to be in so many parts of the country not following the science? Yeah, I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated by the fact that it was deeply politicized. I think. Uh, you know, the president from sort of day one was just like, get him, get everybody back in, no mitigation, nothing. So I think that sort of polarized the conversation. The second is that the evidence on this has shifted. You know, over the summer, I was more cautious, but the evidence has come in that schools seem to be reasonably safe. And so I've also shifted. But I think I understand teachers' concerns. What I have been saying is we need to invest in making sure that we have testing and other things that can offer assurance to people that it really is reasonably safe to get back to school. Yeah, but with the science there and with so many kids suffering from the lack of education and psychological support and the rest, it seems that the country really needs to to pay attention to where the science is. CVS is urgently looking to hire thousands of pharmacists and nurses and pharmacy technicians to help administer the COVID vaccines. Is that safe and is that doable in this very expedited time frame? Yeah, it is. Look, first of all, um, I think pharmacists are probably our most underutilized health profession. I mean, they're really well trained. They can do a lot of this stuff. Uh, We've got to make sure that pharmacists and pharmacists attacks and other people uh, can be part of this vaccination effort. This is going to be the most complicated vaccination effort our country's ever tried to pull off. We're doing it in a pandemic and we're doing it during a presidential transition. I think we can do it. But we're going to have to see companies take on these complex projects like what CBS is doing. And I think they can do it safely. Dr. Fauci says that Christmas and the Christmas holiday and families congregating together could be even more of a challenge than Thanksgiving. How would you advise people who are debating whether or not to travel or attend small holiday gatherings with close friends and family? What, what should people what should people do? Yeah, Jake, this is painful because essentially it's the same advice that I was giving out of Thanksgiving, which is uh, there's really only one way to be really safe, and that is to have a small holiday break, again, within your nuclear family that you live with. Uh, I know that's so painful because holiday season is such a family-oriented thing. The key here is you want to keep people alive, you want to keep people safe with vaccines so close by. I am worried that Thanksgiving, I'm sorry, that Christmas and, and the holidays will end up being another super spreader event. The way it looks like Thanksgiving is, uh, has been, we're starting to see that Thanksgiving surge now. The Surgeon General uh, says that this current surge is different than the previous surges we've seen because the main issue going on right now is healthcare capacity. There have been more than 100,000 Americans hospitalized with coronavirus the past five consecutive days. What needs to be done now to make sure everyone who needs care has access to it? Yeah, this is a huge problem. I've been writing about this, that we're seeing now that hospital care is starting to get restricted for everybody, not just COVID patients. Other people are having a hard time getting hospital care because there just aren't enough uh, beds. And, and, you know, it's not the beds per se. It's the staffing. It's nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists. Beds are not very useful if we don't have those folks. So part of the reason for people being careful and not getting sick right now, obviously, we don't want people getting sick. Also, there just may not be capacity to care for everybody who will need it over the over the next few weeks. An anti-vaccine doctor is testifying on Capitol Hill tomorrow before the U.S. Senate. Can you think of any reason why the U.S. Senate should be lending uh, credibility and a platform to somebody who is ignorantly speaking against vaccines at this point in time? 
Yeah, this is a this is a problem, Jake. You know, Senator Ron Johnson is holding the hearing, held the first round of hearings about two weeks ago. Uh, I was the only test the person who testified about the value of science in that hearing. This is round two. Uh, he's really finding some very fringe members of the medical community who don't represent the mainstream views of, of what medicine and science is. I don't totally understand why Senator Johnson is doing this. I don't think it's helpful at this moment. Uh, we do need to have robust debates about safety and efficacy of vaccines. This is not how you do it by bringing in the, the most fringe elements of this uh, conversation. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Today, President-elect Joe Biden named the key members of his health team with a main focus on getting the raging coronavirus pandemic under control. And at least one of his choices would make history after pressure from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus for more representation in the cabinet. Javier Becerra, the California attorney general and former longtime member of Congress, could become, if confirmed, the first Latino to ever lead the Department of Health and Human Services, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us now. President-elect Joe Biden is filling in another piece of his new administration, announcing today his health experts who will drive the nation's fight against coronavirus. Right now, during COVID, the last thing we need is to have Americans who are left behind. Javier Becerra is Biden's pick for Secretary of Health and Human Services. The California Attorney General and former member of Congress is not a medical expert, but he's led the charge defending the Affordable Care Act. At a time when we're going through this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it, this is not the time to take away people's health care. The rest of the team also taking shape, with Biden unveiling nominations for Surgeon General, head of the CDC, and a chief medical advisor on COVID-19. That post goes to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's become a household name as the nation's top infectious disease doctor. I've worked with all of them before. They're, they're excellent choices. Dr. Vivek Murthy, who served as Surgeon General for three years in the Obama administration, will return to the position. He's been a top COVID advisor to Biden all year. We not only can do better, but we must do better because lives are on the line. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the chief of infectious diseases at Mass General, will lead the CDC. Now is the time to redouble our efforts to pay more attention than we ever have before. Their faces became familiar ones on CNN during the pandemic. And in just seven weeks, they will be responsible for overseeing the vaccine distribution and trying to bring the deadly virus under control. If confirmed by the Senate, Becerra would be the first Latino to serve as HHS secretary, another barrier-breaking pick from Biden. I think his life experiences, which we don't talk about enough as a minority, is going to be very important in HHS as we tackle uh, health disparities across the country. So forming this new government is quite like putting a puzzle together, Jake. So with with uh, HHS in place, now there are two other big positions still looming. That, of course, is for defense secretary and attorney general. There are several finalists for each uh, post. Diversity, um, obviously, is at the front of these questions. But we may hear something later this week or certainly before the Christmas holiday on both of those big pushes, Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Wilmington, Delaware, thanks so much. Negotiators on Capitol Hill are still trying to iron out a few major issues for a stimulus package, including liability protection for companies. Some lawmakers are firmly against it, including Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent from Vermont, who said it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. But Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, who's been part of the team negotiating the deal, told me he disagrees. Senator Sanders respectfully is not involved in these negotiations and his characterization is just not accurate. Um, We are looking at trying to give some level of a timeout to allow um, states, if they want to put in place 
standards we have already, for example, in Virginia, put in COVID standards. That part of the discussion is vigorous and ongoing. The response is independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Senator Sanders, uh, what's your response to those comments by Senator Warner? Um, well, I have great concerns and I share those concerns with the AFL-CIO and hundreds of organizations who understand that right now workers around this country, especially in meat processing uh, plants, have been treated absolutely shamefully. Uh, Amazon, I think, workers in Amazon have developed some 20,000 cases of COVID. We don't know how many have died. What we need to do is to tell corporations that they have got to treat their workers in a way that is safe and healthy. They cannot be irresponsible. And if they are they are irresponsible, there are going to be consequences. And if we go forward and we grant this type of immunity, what corporations are going to say all over the country is, we don't have to do anything for our workers. They can't do anything to us. So you're giving a green light for irresponsible behavior. That's something I don't want to see happen. Uh, but in addition to that, Jake, I have real concerns about this bill or this proposal, which we have not quite seen yet, to be honest with you. Uh, because it does not address the economic crisis facing tens of millions of families in this country. Uh, we are right now in the worst economic shape since the Great Depression. And this proposal does not include that $1,200 direct payment per individual and $500 for kids uh, that we desperately need in order to put working families back on their feet. It would be a real help. We don't have it. I'm going to fight to see that we get that included. Yeah, it's not included in, in that compromise proposal right now. Uh, I understand that you spoke with Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri over the weekend. He is also saying uh, that he wants that included and thinks the bill should be vetoed if it doesn't include it. Um, I wasn't aware that Josh Hawley was in favor of direct payments. Uh, are there enough Republicans uh, on your side on this, on the direct payment part of this, uh, that it could make a difference because obviously Republicans still control the U.S. Senate. Well, that's what we're working on right now. And uh, right now I'm working with my Democratic colleagues uh, to make it clear uh, that we should not go forward unless we do what the American people want. Uh, right now, uh, Jake, as you well know, I mean, we got half of our people living paycheck to paycheck. Something like 20 percent of our population now is either unemployed earning less than $20,000 a year. People are facing eviction. Hunger is at a, a higher level today than any time in, in recent history. We have got to address those issues. And it concerns me very much uh, that uh, this bill is far, far, far less than the other proposals that the Democrats uh, have brought forth. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a second, because, um, look, I don't doubt your sincerity, and I don't doubt that this legislation could be much, much better uh, for all the Americans in desperate need. Uh, but the fact of the matter is Donald Trump is still in the White House and will be until January 20th. Republicans control the U.S. Senate and at the very least will be in charge of the U.S. Senate until January 5th, if not afterwards as well. Um, are you making uh, the good, uh, the, the perfect, the enemy of the good? No, I'm not. Look, as you recall, uh, Trump himself uh, has agreed in the past to, I believe, a $1.8 trillion bill, including uh, these $1,200 direct payments. It's something that Trump has uh, already supported. Uh, we need is, what we need is a compromise. I know I can't get everything that I want, 
But this bill really is not a compromise. It gives the Republicans almost everything that they wanted. And one of the interesting parts about it, as I understand it, and I have not seen the proposal yet, but Mitt Romney, who is one of the Republican negotiators, said that over $500 billion of this $900 billion in the bill is not new money. It's money being shifted away from the old CARES Act, money that has not yet been spent. So we're talking about $350 billion or so new dollars when Democrats originally talked about over $3 trillion in, in new money to help working families in this country. So I don't think this is much of a compromise. I think we've got to do a lot better and negotiate a lot harder. Well, you talked about that $1.8 trillion bill that the White House, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was working on uh, with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, the Democrats walked away from that That's bill right. because they wanted $2.2 trillion, and they walked away from $1.8 trillion. Was that a mistake? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here was a proposal, much, much larger. Democrats said, no, that's not good enough. And now we're prepared to accept a proposal which has, I think, $350 billion in new money and which has, we believe, I believe to the best of my knowledge, this uh, corporate immunity uh, uh, language as well. So I, I, that's my point here, is that I don't think this is much of a compromise. I think the Republicans have probably gotten 90% of what they want our job is to fight, at least get a 50-50 deal. Before you go, Senator, I want to ask you uh, about uh, the, the fact that President-elect Biden tapped Neera Tandon uh, to head the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, last year, you accused her of, of belittling progressive ideas and maligning your campaign staff. Uh, she obviously takes issue and disagrees with that characterization. You could be the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee if Democrats win these runoff elections in January. Uh, where do you stand on Neera Tandon's nomination? Well, we're going to give Ms. Tandon and every, I, I hope, no matter which party controls uh, the Senate, every nominee uh, of the uh, President-elect Biden deserves a fair hearing. Uh, all of the nominees uh, have got to answer some pretty hard questions. That's true for Ms. Tandon. It's true for everybody else. So you're not in favor or against right now. You're just going to give her a fair uh, hearing. That's correct. Uh, lastly, uh, the fact is that your governor in Vermont is a Republican. Does that complicate the idea of you uh, getting a role in the Biden administration, given that your Republican governor would replace you with a, a Republican. No, presumably. that's not true. The, actually, the governor has said that he would replace uh, me if that were to happen. I don't know that it will. But if I became a, a part of the Biden administration, uh, what the governor has indicated is he would uh, replace me with somebody who would caucus with the Democrats. Oh, OK. So if so, that is not a real excuse if they don't actually offer you uh, position. The idea is because you, you will be replaced by a Democrat, theoretically. Yes. All right, Senator Bernie Sanders, thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you, Jake. President Trump just compared the United States to a third world nation. What was he talking about? That's next. Plus, no running water, no electricity, bodies piling up and a CNN exclusive inside hospitals battling a COVID crisis in one country where the numbers certainly do not match the images. Stay with us. Our politics lead now. President Trump is spending his final weeks in office ignoring the scale of the COVID crisis publicly. Instead, he is defying every shred of evidence, insisting even today that he won the election and we're rounding the curve. Neither are true. As Caitlin Collins reports, the president, the outgoing president, is consumed by the fight to overturn the election results. 
victory. Thank you very much. Still fuming about the election, President Donald Trump compared the U.S. to a third world country today as he appeared to acknowledge that his legal efforts to change the results have gone nowhere. Now, this was like from a third world nation, and I think the case has been made, and now we find out what we can do about it. But the case hasn't been made. Trump and his allies have lost or withdrawn at least 40 court cases since the election. Now sources tell CNN that between those court losses, some fast approaching deadlines, and his top attorney being hospitalized with coronavirus, the president's legal efforts might end soon. Well, I think the uh, case has already been made if you look at the polls. There were two more blows to the president's efforts today. Federal judges in Michigan threw out the latest attempt to overturn the result there, calling Trump ally Sidney Powell's lawsuit, quote, nothing but speculation and conjecture. And the state of Georgia recertified its results after counting presidential ballots for a third time and affirming Joe Biden's win once again, despite what President Trump claimed during a rally there Saturday night. You know, we won Georgia, just so you understand. As he awarded the Medal of Freedom to wrestling legend Dan Gable today, Trump attempted to compare their records and wrongly claimed he had won two presidential elections. Well, you know, in politics, I won two, so I'm 2-0, and oh, and uh, that's pretty good too. But we'll see how that turns out. Trump also provided an update on his personal attorney Rudy Giuliani's condition after the 76-year-old was admitted to Georgetown University Medical Center with coronavirus. Rudy's doing well. I just spoke to him. He's doing very well. No temperature. Giuliani has been crisscrossing the country to push Trump's baseless claims about the election, and he often greeted people with a handshake and no mask. While Trump has refused to acknowledge Biden's win or even call the next president, CNN has learned he's already plotting his next steps. And some staffers are now speculating he may not return to the White House after going to Florida for the Christmas holidays, though no final decisions have been made. And, Jake, there are some people who believe there's no way the president doesn't come back to the White House after the Christmas break because, of course, he's been trying to get so much done before he does leave office to really burnish his legacy. One place we do know he is going is back to Georgia ahead of that Senate runoff in January to campaign. Though, of course, when he was there on Saturday night, it was a lot more of him talking about his election loss than it was campaigning for those two Republicans who are going to determine uh, which party, of course, controls the Senate. Yeah, and obviously we're expecting the president to sandwich in a, a number of pardons as well. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Uh, let's discuss, Abby, President Trump traveling again to Georgia. What else might be next for President Trump if his legal challenges come to an official close? Well, Jake, I mean, I think all of this really is ultimately about what he does after, uh, you know, he leaves the White House. It's about trying to set up a political committee that will fund his uh, political future down the road. I wouldn't be surprised if, as uh, we've reported, the president considers uh, even just straight up relaunching uh, a sort of reelection bid for 2024 uh, as he is leaving the White House. This is all about trying to make sure that he secures his place within the Republican Party, that he keeps Republican lawmakers uh, who are currently serving in line, understanding that he still has sway over his base. That's what this whole thing is about. And I think that you'll see the president pretty soon after really um, planting a flag and saying, uh, I am the future of the Republican Party uh, and warning uh, other Republicans who try to break from him uh, that he's not going anywhere. Yeah, of course, he is establishing simultaneously as his legacy the fact that he is the worst sorest loser in American political 
history. Uh, meanwhile, Ron, while President Trump is largely ignoring this horrific pandemic, at least in his public comments, uh, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has become infected. Yeah. Um, so in a weird way, and obviously we all wish the best for for Mr. Giuliani, but it's possible that coronavirus will be the downfall of his election fight. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, the clock is running out and certainly Rudy Giuliani going to the hospital doesn't, uh, you know, uh, help his cause. But the cause has already been sunk by the lack of evidence that has caused him to lose uh, lawsuits all over the country. And it really is striking that both of these things are happening at once, Jake, as you kind of alluded to. I mean, here we are on Pearl Harbor Day. We are having a Pearl Harbor every day in the United States uh, in terms of the number of casualties from, from the uh, coronavirus. And yet, virtually, I, I don't think any leading Republican has complained about the president essentially walking away from the fight, leaving Americans on their own to face this as we uh, deal with the, the highest peaks of this outbreak in the same way that virtually no Republicans in Congress, even to this point, uh, are calling out the president's, uh, you know, poisonous fantasies of voter fraud and suppression uh, that have led to death threats, not only now in Georgia and Arizona against Secretary of State, but, you know, a kind of a mob of armed protesters outside the home of the Michigan Secretary of State last night. And still Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy can't say this is wrong. This is dangerous. This is not grounded. In fact, really remarkable and ominous about where we are going in terms of our ability to function as one cohesive country. Uh, it's worse than that, even, uh, Ron, because uh, Abby, uh, tomorrow, a, a vaccine denier is going to testify before the Senate mm -hmm. Homeland uh, Security Committee. Uh, and CNN's now also learning that some of the president's uh, biggest allies on Capitol Hill, his, his most sycophantic uh, friends, are, are urging him to not concede even after Biden wins the Electoral College vote next week. Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, telling CNN that this could include a debate over the results on the House floor. And just a reminder, uh, a president-elect Biden not only won the Electoral College significantly, and we'll see that officially, but he won the popular vote margin by 7 million votes, or if not more. What do you make of this, Abby? The big picture of all of this is a Republican Party that is being swallowed alive by conspiracies and being uh, allowing itself to be completely taken over by that element uh, of its base. We can't, in fact, we can't even really call it that, uh, that it's some sort of, uh, you know, the sort of base element of the Republican Party. This is the party. Uh, you sitting United States senators and inv inviting a vac vaccine skeptic to come and testify someone who is pushing hydroxychloroquine, which has been proven to have no impact on the coronavirus to come before the Senate. Even as we are on the cusp of a vaccine that could help us through this pandemic, you've got QAnon supporters being elected to join the Congress. It should not be a surprise then that uh, you have sitting members of the House and the Senate supporting the president in an effort to build a conspiracy theory around this election that he can live off of for the next four years. Uh, this is now what has become of the Republican Party. And if people don't want that to be the case, they should probably start speaking up about it now. Ron, what is happening to the Republican Party? Like, where do they go from here? Yeah, well, look, I mean, this, I, this is kind of a form of secession from shared, uh, kind of shared reality in the U.S., where you have this continuing, the, the willingness of virtually all Republicans, Kelly Leffler in that debate last night in Georgia, the Georgia Senate debate, refusing to say that Joe Biden won the state, saying that Donald Trump was uh, within his rights to pursue every legal means. He's pursuing extra legal means to try to overturn this election now, trying to uh, pressure the governor uh, to throw out the results of the vote and 
uh, appoint, you know, have the state legislature appoint electors uh, in his favor. I mean, you I don't think you can you can overstate the extent to to which uh, we are watching the Republican Party, I think, refuse to accept uh, that blue America has legitimacy when it outvotes them. Um, you know, th- it's not as if Donald Trump is an outlier here. The, 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 the broad range of Congress is supporting him and a lot of Republican voters uh, are supporting him. 75, 80% of Republican vote of his voters saying the election was stolen. When Joe Biden talks about unifying the country, he's going to have to deal with a Republican party that is kind of moving in a centrifugal direction far more than it was even under Obama, much less Bill Clinton. All right. Depressing news. Ron Brownstein and Abby Phillip, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Breaking news. We now know when President-elect Biden will name his attorney general and his secretary of defense. That's next. Moments ago, President-elect Joe Biden told reporters that he plans to announce two big nominations this week. The president-elect says he will name his attorney general and to Secretary of Defense. It could be historic. Biden has been facing pressure to pick someone of color for one or both of these positions, and he has promised to fulfill his promise to build a diverse administration, though he has not made any specific commitments. In our health lead, not enough vaccine. A CNN analysis shows that the number of doses each state plans to receive will be much less than what they need to vaccinate all healthcare workers and long-term care residents. As we're learning, some states have to choose, even among the first wave, who will get the vaccine first. CNN's Pete Montine joins me now to discuss. Pete, how are states determining who will get the vaccine first? Well, it's widely agreed upon, Jake, that frontline health care workers and those living in long-term care facilities should get vaccinated at least off of the bat. But what's so interesting here is that we're learning from states that it will not have enough vaccine, at least initially, to cover everybody in that top tier. And now states will have to prioritize within that group. The conditions are really stark in a place like California. It says it will not have enough vaccine, at least initially, to cover only one in every 10 frontline healthcare workers. Do we know when more vaccines will then become available for the remaining healthcare workers and long-term care uh, residents? Well, this is a bit of a rollout, Jake, and what remains to be seen is whether or not this will be smooth and quick or slow and rocky. You know, states say they will keep vaccinating that top tier as they get more vaccine shipments in, but this is going to be a process. Pete, you've been inside these cargo planes that can hold up to half a million doses of the vaccine. How is this distribution going to work? It's going to be pretty tricky, Jake. You know, American Airlines says it will begin shipping the vaccine within 24 hours of emergency FDA approval. But the real challenge here is keeping the vaccine cold, in some cases, super, super cold. We know that the Pfizer vaccine needs to be negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit as it's being transported. Airlines insist that they are up for the challenge. They have special equipment in place, and that is critical because it's airlines who could be transporting the vaccine the furthest. Thank you so much, Pete Montine. Appreciate it. It looks like an abandoned building, but these awful images are actually a working hospital treating COVID patients right now. CNN's pulls back the curtain on this horrific reality in one country. That's next. In the world lead, a CNN exclusive now rare access inside hospitals in Caracas, Venezuela, revealing a crisis. Describing this as disgusting or abhorrent would be an understatement. 
dirty, dilapidated hospitals with no running water, no electricity, where people are afraid to get care. A morgue where the smell of dead bodies is unbearable. The scene makes Venezuela's government numbers questionable. Only 104,000 COVID cases since March and 919 deaths. That's according to the Venezuelan government. But doctors brave enough to speak up say the truth is far, far worse. They blame President Nicolas Maduro and his socialist government and his years of corruption and mismanagement for the worsening crisis. CNN's Issa Suarez has a look at the unimaginable conditions in this CNN exclusive. In Los Magallanes Public Hospital in Caracas, remnants of this once wealthy nation lie strewn on the dirt floor. It's shackle wards hiding what the Venezuelan government doesn't want us to see. Here, COVID-19 has unmasked Venezuela's open wounds. And practically every floor of this hospital is empty, tells me this hospital worker who prefers to remain anonymous. It's a risk only a few dare to take. This is the COVID-19 ward. Only this part of it is functional. The rest is completely run down after years of mismanagement. So it's no surprise many would rather face the pandemic outside these walls, choosing instead their homes over these decrepit rooms, where darkness has literally taken over. This is the intensive neonatal ward. And the reason I'm holding up this light right here is because... There is no electricity in this hospital. Have a look around. Bare bones. And what I've been told by doctors around Caracas and outside of Caracas is that this is a situation day in, day out. Even in the morgue, death comes with shortages. There's no pathologist here. And with intermittent electricity, the stench is unbearable. Now imagine having to face a pandemic in these conditions. It's why doctors like Gustavo Villasmil are no longer afraid to speak out. I have friends of mine who have been criminally charged, he says. Why? For protesting the conditions in which they've been forced to practice. So he doesn't hold back. In Venezuela, he tells me, there are only as many recognized COVID cases as the regime wants. With testing limited to three government control labs, Vijasmil says it's impossible to paint an accurate picture. With regards to COVID, he says, we don't know where we are. The government, however, claims the pandemic is under control, saying its strategy has worked. A government minder shows us inside a hotel where suspected infected patients are kept in quarantine for up to 21 days. It's a lockdown strategy employed by China which the government of Nicolas Maduro has been keen to extol. Venezuelans have shown an immunity to the virus, says this doctor, towing the government line. The families of those who have died on the front lines may see it differently. 272 healthcare workers have lost their lives in Venezuela as of November the 30th. At Hospital Vargas in Caracas, you can see why. They are overworked and unprotected. It's one nurse for this whole area here. No tenemos tapabocas, no tenemos guantes. Este, 
el agua lo ponen una sola vez al día, o sea, una hora en la mañana, una, una hora en la tarde, una hora en la noche. Aquí no hay escobas, no hay mopas, no hay pañito. This is evident all around. And as I walk this ward, I stop to speak to a patient's daughter. She tells me her frail 69-year-old father is here because of malnourishment, the same state-imposed malady that we've seen across Venezuela. His immune system is compromised, yet he shares this ward with a COVID patient. His daughter tells me he needs iron supplements that the hospital simply doesn't have. Have a look at this. I mean, this is what, this is what they, they have to work with here, nurses and doctors. Syringes, to standing. They've got nothing. There's a vast emptiness all around and a sense of disillusionment and surrender. Painful, no doubt, for those who saw this once oil-rich country as one of the wealthiest in Latin America, now tittering on the brink of survival. And Jake, CNN reached out to the Venezuelan government for comment on really the state, the conditions on those in these two public hospitals, as well as the criticism you heard in our reporting from those healthcare professionals. And to date, we have not heard anything. Jake? Isa, there was an election yesterday. It was boycotted by many Venezuelans. Uh, but in it, uh, several Maduro supporters are now claiming uh, victory, claiming control of Venezuela's Congress. Uh, do any of these individuals publicly recognize the dire conditions? Have they made any promises to, to help matters. And on, on that, on the election, first of all, Jake, it is not just his supporters or anyone who, who backs Maduro, but also Maduro's party himself, which secured the biggest percentage of the vote, just over 67%, according to figures from the government-appointed National Electoral Council. That is important to state. But what we saw in the last 24 hours here in Venezuela's Jake, is really Nicolas Maduro taking control of the last bastion of Venezuelan democracy, which until now had been in the hands of Juan Guaidó. He was controlling the National Assembly. And he is the man seen by more than 60 countries as really the, the, the rightful president of Venezuela. But on the question of the conditions, you won't hear anyone from Maduro's government acknowledging that. Instead, they blame the election, they blame this U.S. sanctions. They say U.S. sanctions are to blame. Medicine isn't coming into the country. The medical equipment isn't coming into the country. The food isn't coming into the country because of U.S. sanctions. And that simply is not true. One, because U.S. sanctions are very recent. Two, because U.S. sanctions are very targeted. They're targeted at individuals and also big corporations like PEDVESA, which is the cash cow, petrol cash cow of Venezuela. What we are seeing here, really, Jake, are years of mismanagement, years of corruption that really COVID-19 is bringing to the surface. And that's something they simply will never acknowledge. Jake? And, and Issa, the doctors with whom you spoke, what do they say about these relatively low COVID numbers that the corrupt Maduro regime continues to put out. What do they say the actual number is more likely to be? They don't dissect those figures. They tell me already that we're seeing a second wave of COVID infections. They think the figures we're looking at four times more than what is being reported. And it's simple. There are three only, only three government control labs. And they tell me that really they're controlling the labs. They're controlling the numbers. If they control the numbers, they control the narrative. So they are taking note of what they're seeing 
and really keeping track of that, but they do not pay attention to the numbers. They simply do not trust it. Again, Jake, question of transparency. Lisa Suarez and her team doing incredible work covering the tragedy that is the Maduro-controlled Venezuela. Thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.